This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FULL75. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, January 24th, and we're talking batteries. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers via Skype. How's it going, Tim? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? You know, I'm doing great, Tim. You know, I'm happy to have you on today to talk a little bit about a little bit about batteries. You know, on this show over the past few months, we've talked about a lot of trends that at the end of the day really depend on batteries. So we've talked about micromobility, we've talked about renewal, uh, renewable energy, we've talked about electric vehicles. And at the end of the day, all of those industries in one way or another are dependent on batteries, whether it's right. uh, you know energy storage for renewable vehicles or batteries themselves, you know, to go into the battery packs that power uh, electric vehicles and those micro mobility solutions. So Tim, just just off the bat, as, as we look at the way batteries are kind of evolving and becoming an even more important part um, uh, just of our economy and the services that people really want, uh, what's your kind of view on the role that batteries are going to play uh, as part of you know just business in general over the next five years or so? Uh, I, I think they're part of the picks and shovels of you know business, future business that's data driven, it's electrified. Um, you know the the grid that we have five years from now probably is is going to look materially different from the grid we have today. And a lot of that, I mean, let's just be honest, that's driven by electrical vehicles. Um, but the increasing demand for uh, for batteries and for um, the primary element in batteries that we're seeing today, which are are called lithium ion batteries, and essentially what that is is it uses the element lithium to capture uh, capture ions, capture electric particles, and turn them into uh, you know power usable power, and so so. For example, in like a Tesla battery, you have lots of little lithium-ion batteries stitched together to make one big battery to move a car. So over the course of the next five years, it, it does look like this is going to grow 10 to 15 percent. Um, and I, I think that's a sustainable number over the course of the next 10 years. But at least for the next five years, that's what we're looking at. And then just in terms of you know where we're seeing this... Um, you know, there are different companies that are tying up and recognizing that batteries are very important. So, for example, um, in June, GM and, and Honda uh, announced a partnership. Uh, you know, Honda is going to buy battery modules from from GM and they have some battery manufacturing actually in Michigan. Um, they're looking for, you know, better performance, longer range, all the things you would want. Um, you know, we used to talk about things like fuel economy. I mean, basically, this is like battery economy. This was this partnership is sort of built around because the recognition is that the better you make a battery, the better you can make an electrical vehicle. And the same is true for everything where there is a battery at the heart of it, like data centers or a grid or, you know, even um, a corporate headquarters, you know, where you want to have some kind of disaster recovery plan, um, you know, with so much. Uh, power and and you know computers, uh, LED lights, things like that. You might have some kind of electrical generator that's powered with an advanced battery. So um, this is all part of, I think, a much bigger movement to make 
uh, a effective and efficient use of electricity, an important part of, of how we do business in the future. So, I mean, GM and Honda aren't the only one. Toyota and Panasonic are doing this. Ford and VW are rumored to be expanding in this area. So it's primarily EVs, but that's not the only thing that's driving this demand. Sure. And as you look at battery demand, it really looks like a classic exponentially increasing curve. We're just going straight up to the right and it's just, you know, the growth increasing year over year in an exponential fashion. And, you know, leading up to to today, we've really seen most of the demand uh, uh, for batteries coming from like our devices, like our smartphones and things like sure. that. But but yep. as we're moving out, as you mentioned, um, EVs are really going to be the driver um, uh, of of demand uh, for batteries. Uh, Goldman had some numbers out where they're projecting about fifty five percent of the lithium ion battery market uh, will be controlled by EVs uh, by twenty twenty. You know, another thing you mentioned too is that stationary storage. We're we're expecting that to start catching up. Um, um, with devices when it comes to how much um, uh, of the battery market is controlled by, by those, those things. So, so we're really seeing batteries emerge as a really important part of the economy when it comes to both energy production and transportation. And it's definitely going to be an important thing to follow going forward. And I, I think a, a, as we talk about batteries, I think it's important to communicate what exactly a battery is and how it works. Yeah, sure. Um, so that the simplest definition of what a battery is, that it's a device that is able to store electrical energy energy in the form of chemical energy and then convert that energy into electricity. So like, like Tim said a minute ago, you, you'll have uh, different chemical substances in the battery, which then exchange electrons uh, across the battery uh, a cell, which, which exchanges energy. And, and the, the main parts of a battery are the cathode, which is the positive terminal of the battery, the anode, which is the negative terminal of the battery, um, and, and the electrolyte. And what happens is, uh, electrons flow from the anode, the negative terminal of the battery, towards the cathode, uh, and, and create, you know, a um, a closed circuit. And and right now, the most popular batteries today um, for for all the, the main applications that we're talking about are lithium ion batteries. And what that means is, the lithium uh, is is the material that is in the cathode, in the positively charged side of the battery, and, and it's that's what's used to exchange uh, uh, electrons across the system. Um, and uh, Tim, why? What is the real appeal behind lithium ions right now? Why are we seeing them as you know the kind of default uh, when when you know uh, manufacturers want to make these large batteries? You know whether it's whether it's in your phone or or it's in a, an electric vehicle. Well, first of all, it, it happens to be. I mean, th- there is a fair amount of lithium available, but it's also very thin. It's very light. Uh, like a classic alkaline battery and just or in a car, what was, is called a lead acid battery is very messy. Um, it discharges a lot of electricity, it's just not very efficient. Whereas a lithium ion battery holds its charge for, for quite a long time. So um, when you charge a lithium ion battery, whether it's inside your iPhone or in a Tesla car, you can be fairly secure that the charge you put in, most of it is going to stay there until you use it. Unless for some reason the battery itself has gone faulty. But for the most part, a lithium ion battery is very, very efficient, much more so than the classic alkaline battery, which is not rechargeable. 
like a lithium ion battery is or a lead acid battery, which is rechargeable, but is consistently recharged. So like in the case of a car, when you drive, you are literally recharging that lead acid battery. Um, but after a while, because of, you know, you keep going and going and going, um, even that is going to, you know, lose its charge because it's just not that efficient. And so like if just a perfect a classic example of this and we've all done this, right? So there's no judgment, you know, you leave the lights on in your car overnight and the next day the battery doesn't, you know, you, you just can't turn on the car. You have wasted the battery. That's an example. Like you would never do that. A lithium ion battery would not uh, just, you know, sputter out if you left the the lights in on your Tesla uh, overnight. I don't think Tesla even allows you to do that. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you did, that's the difference between a lead acid battery or an alkaline battery and a lithium ion battery. It's just straight up efficiency. Sure. Yeah. In addition, you get some advantages with energy density. Uh, you know, sure. It, as you mentioned, you know it. It doesn't. It doesn't discharge itself. So sometimes you'll have issues where, as you said, you, you, you'll leave a battery and you know not use it over a period of time. Maybe you come back a week later and twenty or thirty percent of your charge has has kind of gone down on the battery. You don't have that issue with lithium ion batteries. Another another uh, thing we think about a lot of times you hear about. Hey, you want to keep your you want to keep uh, let let your battery go all the way down to zero and then charge it up up to max. Otherwise, you're going to lose capacity in your battery. Lithium-ion batteries don't have that problem. They don't have right. this memory effect where they remember, uh, you know, how you know how much of a, of the battery you use, and then uh, you know that the battery degrades over time. So there's a lot right. of advantages uh, to using lithium-ion batteries, which is why they've really become a, a large part uh, of uh, you know the battery market, and you know looking to be uh, the the dominant force when it comes to batteries moving forward. And you know when we talk about how important this is, uh, you know, lithium as a material uh, to make these cathodes in, in these next generation batteries. Let's talk about, you know, how we even get lithium in the first place. Um, so when we look at production sources back in 2017, it's kind of, it's split uh, between lithium produced from brine ponds, uh, predominantly in South America and Argentina and Chile, and also uh, production from mineral rocks in Australia, China, Zimbabwe, and Portugal. So, uh, just just a kind of brief background on these. When you're mining lithium uh, from a brine pond, it it's basically removed uh, through normal uh, natural evaporation um, of the, of the of the water from the brine, and then you extract the lithium and and other materials. It's probably the cheapest and simplest way to extract lithium, but it can be time consuming. The stat that I saw is it took you know eight months to two years to to extract lithium in that way, and then when you produce lithium. From mineral rocks, uh, there are some advantages in that I, I believe you can get uh, more uh, concentrated amounts of of the the metal uh, when you mine. But there are some; uh, it's more expensive uh, to extract lithium this way, and also has some environmental impacts. Um, right. But but the important thing to note about lithium is that China really dominates um, the market globally. Do you want to talk about a little bit about that, uh, Tim? Yeah, I mean, it, and it, roughly half the market, in fact. And um, this is one of the places where China has a lot of natural resource issues. For example, they don't have very much in in the way of oil reserves, so they're dependent on their neighbor Russia. They're dependent on uh, the Middle East in in some ways, and and even us. I mean, we have some advantages there because we have more oil reserves than than the Chinese do. But they do have a a 
boy, they have a lot of lithium. And most of it, I believe, is is mineral rock uh, lithium. And and so they, they have lots of mining. Um, and this is really good for producing lithium-ion batteries. Um, and they, there are several companies that are um, – there are several companies, Chinese companies, native companies that are, um, you know, making their name in in the lithium business. Um, so one of them, for example, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this name. So my apologies to, to the listeners, but I thought it was Tianqi uh, Lithium. Uh, they recently paid more than $4 billion. I mean, they have that kind of cash to become the second largest shareholder and um, society, uh, SQM, gosh. SQM. Yes. Just, let's just say SQM, right. It's a Chilean mining company. Um, so, you know, they have, th- this is one of the largest, uh, lithium aggregators and producers in the world. Um, that's really the, the important thing to remember here. And, and it's a Chinese company. And so really there's, when we're making lithium ion batteries here, or we're importing them, um, in a lot of ways, we are kind of subject to, uh, you know, how these Chinese companies are willing to deal with us. And that's true in other countries as well. So, um, I don't think there, there hasn't been a lot of talk about the impact of this, of the, of the trade war, um, uh, because it's such a popular, you know, it's such a popular element. And of course, China wants to be selling this as much as, as humanly possible, but, um, they're at, in their home market, um, because lithium ion batteries are key to electric vehicles, it is a very big advantage for them, uh, to be able to have this much native, uh, production of, of lithium and, uh, be able to make lithium ion batteries for EVs or electric, electrically powered buses, remaking the grid, things like that. China has a homegrown advantage in this area. Uh, so when you're looking at this as an investor, um, it's natural to be taking a look at China. Right. I mean, when you, when you look at China, they've really been wanting to push more towards cleaner energy, given their pollution issues, as, as well as, right. as you mentioned, they, they've been able to make investments in, in lithium mining facilities in both South America and in Australia to kind of uh, get a big bite out of the market um, outside right. of China. In addition to, uh, they're relatively uh, weak when it comes to supplies of, of hydrocarbons, like like maybe oil or natural gas. However, yep. China uh, comparatively has has a pretty robust lithium reserve that they really haven't uh, dove you know dived into in a significant way as they as they've locked up supply elsewhere. So I, yeah, you, you can really see both their you know their their natural resource positioning. Uh, draws them towards lithium as well as the emphasis on clean energy. Um, You you see this is is definitely a point of emphasis for China. And we'll discuss later that that China really controls uh, a large part of both the demand side when it comes to to the battery markets and EVs, as well as the supply side. And and the other thing I want to talk about, too, you know, we mentioned lithium and China's role there. Let's talk about cobalt. Cobalt is another element of, of a battery, which is uh, pretty significant. There's it is expensive, which is why you've seen um, a lot of of uh, battery manufacturers try to bring down the supply of cobalt. However, even even with efforts to do that, uh, cobalt is still expected to increase in demand by between ten and twenty five times current levels by twenty thirty, um, with over fifty percent of that demand coming from batteries. Um, it, 
even though folks want to get cobalt out of the battery, it, it is really important when it comes to uh, both the longevity of the battery, being able to uh, charge a battery to full and then uh, you know, use its energy and then recharge it. Uh, cobalt helps to maintain the stability of the battery as well as from a safety perspective. As you decrease the amount of cobalt in the battery, you necessarily have to increase the level of, of nickel in the battery, which increase risks, risks of overheating and fires and things like that. So, so it's a really important input uh, towards batteries that, that maybe is under-recognized. And you know, the IEA has noted that there, are, there is some risk uh, when it comes to uh, you know, the cobalt supply in that about two-thirds of, of global supply of cobalt is sourced out of the Congo, uh, which the, the Congo is, is a country that is, number one, it, it, it's remote, it's in Central Africa, um, but number two, it, it has a history of political instability, which the IEA has called out could be a risk uh, um, to, to uh, cobalt supplies going forward, something to keep in mind. Um, again, when it comes to cobalt, China has a significant um, position in that market, I, they believe I believe they control eight of the fourteen largest miners in the Congo, um, and and they also account for ninety percent of the production of cobalt-related chemicals. You have to take that metal out of the ground and then refine it into something that's usable for your battery. Um, what you know, taking taking you know China's position in cobalt and then layering it over with what's going on with lithium. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the that nation's efforts to to really Lock down and get get their get their uh, fingers in the supply for the you know these important inputs uh, for lithium ion batteries. Well, it helps them be a a key player in you know this market going forward. I mean, it, when you look at how China has locked up parts of the supply chain, both on the on the supply and and the demand side, like you were pointing out, Nick, um, what it means is that whether or not. You're you're talking about cobalt for stabilizing the battery, and and just a, a little bit of you know a brief interlude of, of history here. Cobalt is a stabilizing agent in a lot of ways. In fact, it used to be the principal stabilizing agent in nuclear power plants, or one of the key uh, you know stabilizing agents. So this is. Uh, this is something that is is industrial grade, even though it's expensive. That's one of the reasons it's expensive is because it's industrial grade. It has long life. It has a lot of uses, um, but we're going to use it up pretty quickly. I, I would say, um, you know, as demand for electric vehicles grows, and so there is this movement from like Tesla and others to reduce their dependence on cobalt, not just because of the China chokehold. But because of the expense of building a battery that is um, very stable, not flammable, or at least less flammable, because of you, you know, using cobalt uh, in combination with lithium. But um, this is one of the areas where China is is very cagey, very smart, and has they do have a little bit of a chokehold on this. Um, so as the um, you know, as the electric vehicle market grows, um, as it becomes, you know, the, the principal standard, it becomes where you have, um, you know, a, a need to figure out 
which of these parts, you know, you're going to, you know, where you're going to get them from and who's going to be single source suppliers. And right now it's looking very much like the China market is is where we'll be going to unless uh, Tesla has, you know, immense success with with the Gigafactory, something they have out in, in Las Vegas. But here in the U.S., I mean, we, we have very little um, uh, lithium now. I Lithium is not a, a big natural resource here in the United States. So um, when you're looking at um, you know alternatives, there are things like you mentioned nickel. Um, manganese is another one. So as you you know look at different ways to produce cathodes to go with you know with that that lithium anode, um, there there is a a strong interest in sort of moving away from these strongholds that, that sort of China has built up some reserves around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there are some explorations into, hey, can we replace lithium uh, in the cathode with, with aluminum? I just want to call it, too, the lithium goes in the, the cathode side side of a lithium-ion battery. The anode yes, apologies. is- Yeah. The anode is predominantly at this time uh, is graphite, which- uh, you know, uh, surprise, surprise! China uh, in 2017 had 65% of the global production of graphite as well. So, on both the, the cathode and the anode side uh, of the battery, China's been, been you know, ha- had a major presence there. But, um, you know, on the on the on the anode side, we have seen some exploration into hey, maybe we can replace uh, the graphite with aluminum. It can hold more lithium ions. So there's definitely been some exploration there. Um, but I don't think any of those technologies are ready to reach commercial scale right now. So I think. What's important to, to just take away from the macro perspective is, it, as we look out into the battery market, at least in the near term, when I say near term, the next three to five years, it's going to run through China in, in some capacity or the other. Uh, the, the leading uh, EV battery kind of formula that's being used right now is a nickel manganese cobalt oxide cathode. Uh, China controls 57% of the production there. So when you talk about having significant control of the inputs when it comes to lithium, and cobalt, uh, when it comes to the refining capacity for cobalt, to put it, uh, I think they have 80% of that capacity, to put that cobalt into the chemical form needed to put it into the battery. And then you take on top of that, they have uh, a majority share of manufacturing of those cathodes that go into the, the main lithium-ion batteries. And uh, over about, uh, uh, I think, 40% of EV demand by 2040 um, is what the IEA is projecting uh, China to control. So when you, as I mentioned earlier, when you really are controlling all the steps uh, uh, in in the the value chain from you know a rock coming out of the ground all the way down to you know an EV driving off the lot, um, at least in the near term, it appears that China is going to have a very important um, role there. Right. Um, on the back half of the show, we're going to talk about some of the business of the businesses that uh, you know our listeners really should be paying attention to when it comes to the battery market. But first, a message from our sponsor. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. The HEPA filter technology that's been used to clean your air was developed in the 1940s, and there really haven't been any major innovations since. Now, Molecule's PICO technology, that's photoelectrochemical oxidation, goes beyond the HEPA filter system to both capture and eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. That includes pollutants a thousand times smaller than what a HEPA filter can catch. 
Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helping them better cope with their conditions and significantly reducing their symptoms. One customer has reported that after using Molecule in her home, she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. You know, and the Motley Fool's own analyst, Jim Mueller, uses Molecule in his home, and he's really benefited from using that in his home. I I know he started uh, with only only one device, and now I believe he has he has as many as three. So this is this is a device that has really worked. uh, You know, for for people all around the Motley Fool and you know other Molecule customers. So if you want to check out Molecule, you can get seventy five dollars off your first order when you visit m o l e k u l e dot com and enter the promo code. Full 75. That's M O L E K U L E dot com and promo code full 75. All right, Tim, let's talk about a few companies that kind of catch our eye in the battery space. And I think, first off, you wanted to share a little bit of a cautionary tale, um, you know, a little bit of a, a tread, tread lightly uh, um, story. What's the company you wanted to mention when it comes to that in the battery arena? Well, it's it's A123 that is now a subsidiary of Wangchang uh, Group in, in China. Um, they were a very hot public company uh, several years ago, back around 2010. Um, they were a maker of um, lithium-ion phosphate batteries, which were purported to be one of the... I mean, this was before Tesla was the big maker of lithium-ion batteries here in in the U.S., A123 was a public company that was purporting to be a a battery supplier and had rich contracts in in China to you know make these very useful batteries. Unfortunately, um, even after they they wrote a contract with Fisker Automotive, which was a competitor to Tesla a few years ago, and um, there was a recall on their batteries. And so that recall essentially just ended the dream for both companies. And so um, they were acquired for, you know, pennies on the dollar. I'm talking both about A123 and Fisker, which are now both part of Wangchang. And, um, you know, they, they, they are sort of bit players now, but for Wangchang, this is one of those Chinese companies we were talking about earlier which has parts of the supply chain that they are stitching together. And as the homegrown market for electric vehicles improves, uh, you can bet that this company is going to take some of that intellectual property and see how they can leverage it for their own vehicles um, using the Fisker brand. The A123 brand is still around. But, I mean, this is you know a classic case of where you don't really know even if the opportunity is very clear, it can be hard to determine what you know who the winners are going to be. Um, and sometimes, what you really want to look for are things like what kind of R and D and what are you seeing from that R and D is going into uh, you know each of these companies because we're still kind of early, Nick. Yeah, well, yeah, we are, Tim. And another thing to mention too, uh, when you're talking about you know a market as global as batteries, and when you're talking about inputs like lithium and cobalt, uh, you know it, it's this is a market that is probably going to be commoditized relatively quickly, um, and, and particularly as we see, you know, uh, um, more supply come online to try to meet this demand. It could be a little bit of a roller coaster ride when it comes to some of these companies. So you want to make sure you invest in a company that really has some kind of 
competitive advantage, whether it's from a management perspective, being able to kind of ride the ups and downs in the market and, and, and kind of continue to keep moving up and to the right. Or, you know, as you mentioned, a, a company that's really innovative and can stay one step ahead of the competition doing something unique that no one else is doing. Um, if you can't identify either of those, I think it's probably a, it's probably a stay away in a market as nascent as this. Um, let's talk about uh, probably the company that you know everybody thinks of first when it comes to EVs, and probably when it comes to batteries as well. That's Tesla. Um, yep. You know, through their partnership with Panasonic at the Gigafactory um, in Nevada, they produce a large share of the uh, the, the world's EV batteries, at least the production that's available today. When you look at Tesla's battery business and kind of where it fits in the context of the business as a whole, uh, what do you think uh, the opportunity is there and what kind of stands out to you? Well, what stands out to me, let's let's start there, is that um, Tesla is a volume producer. So what I mean by that is um, they are taking individual lithium-ion batteries and the way that they make them is a little bit different than than some others, like they use a combination of of lithium nickel, you know, cobalt and and aluminum. Um, so their cathodes are, are are a little bit different than than standard. Um, that's probably smart because if you're as you're inserting aluminum, um, you, you mentioned aluminum earlier, Nick. There is um, aluminum can be a very um, useful conducting agent. Um, it's very very plentiful in the earth, but it's unproven right now in this particular part of the market. I mean, I think there's there's some real opportunity there. So it's nice that Tesla is trying this, but as they're basically, they're, they're taking a lot of batteries, stitching them together and making a very big battery. And what's very interesting about Tesla is as they continue to experiment with this, and, and this is where I think the real long-term opportunity is. It's certainly in the vehicles. But if you look at where they did you know, a very big experiment in the Australian Outback and made some, some sta- a very stable power plant um, overflow, where they were, they were rolling blackouts throughout parts of Australia because the grid had proven to be unreliable. And so what Tesla did is... Um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I believe they went out and and built this battery backup plant that could be an overflow for for the grid. And it is essentially all um, Tesla batteries. I mean, they are built with that same lithium ion technology. Um, it's renewable. It's storable. Um, it's kind of a test case for what you can do with, uh, a, you know, as part of remaking a grid with things like lithium ion uh, technology. And it's proven to be very, very successful in Australia. That does not mean it's going to work everywhere or that it's something that you can do at scale. But every experiment that Tesla conducts in this area to either increase the efficiency of a battery or to increase the viability of it at scale creates um, you know, a, a whole new infrastructure potentially for for power and power usage from uh, data centers to electrical vehicles to the grid. And so Tesla is kind of unique in playing in a lot of these areas. Um, you know, they do report things like, you know, their their storage product performance. Um, they, they have uh, solar energy products. So they're very much involved in the entire ecosystem and they're kind of unique in, in that way. Now, 
Um, Tesla has some problems, specifically some management problems. But um, given their position and given what they're trying to do, um, it will take them a while to really get over on the, on the infrastructure. Um, but I, I do believe that they are uniquely positioned uh, more so than any other company and are playing in areas where others just are starting to experiment. And, and that is, is highly useful. I like Tesla at these levels because of that level of optionality. But I, you know, I, I recognize that there are some challenges ahead for the company, too. Yeah, I want to call out a few a few things on Tesla. Maybe maybe get your thoughts on on some of those things that you mentioned. I do want to call out uh, Tesla's battery production. They're kind of taking a different tack than the rest of the market. Both, as you mentioned, the the, the battery chemistry. They've really been able to to bring the cobalt input uh, into their batteries down as low as anyone else on the market, which has really helped them to to bring down the, the cost of their battery packs. Yep. Um, they're also making batteries in a little bit different way than the rest of uh, the automotive market has really been pursuing. So Tesla makes these, they're called cylindrical battery cells. So they look cylindrical. It looks like the battery that you might put in your remote control or anything right. like that. And you wire, right. and they, and those are the individual cells. And then you wire a bunch of those together, and that becomes the battery pack uh, uh, for a Tesla vehicle or their storage, uh, energy storage products or anything like that. Um, that's different from what you've seen from the rest of the automotive market, uh, focusing on prismatic batteries and. Uh, you know the latest deal we've seen, you know, addressing prismatic batteries has been the deal between Toyota and Panasonic, uh, where they're going to have a joint venture, 51% owned by Toyota, with the rest owned by Panasonic to manufacture um, uh, these prismatic batteries. And you know, when I mentioned Panasonic, I, I wanted to to bring this up to you, Tim, and get get your thoughts uh, as Tesla is building its new uh, factory in China. Um, there are talks that its exclusivity deal. Uh, with Panasonic is is going to go away, and they're going to move toward right. more Chinese suppliers. It had been uh, their their key partner um, on the Gigafactory was Panasonic. They'd put in about 1.6 billion dollars into the facility. We're seeing that partnership maybe uh, splinter a little bit, or maybe see a, a gap forming between those businesses. Um, what what are your thoughts on that relationship between Tesla and Panasonic, uh, kind of entering a different uh, dynamic? Yeah, I I don't think that's surprising, and the reason I don't think that's surprising is. Uh, Tesla doesn't really have much choice uh, other than to play China's game. They don't have a, uh, a a very well constructed balance sheet right now. They have a lot of debt. They're just starting to to generate cash flow. You can't really name your terms when your balance sheet is is a little bit weak, and Tesla's balance sheet is a little bit weak. And so when they're they're starting to set up a factory there, um, there's two things at play. Uh, first is a little bit of nationalistic spirit. Um, and whether you think you know the president is right or wrong uh, on the trade war, it has inspired some moves by Chinese regulators to start thinking about, okay, how can we make sure we use more homegrown technology? Um, and so that applies all the way from chips right down into batteries. Also, recognize that in China, which could be one of the biggest EV markets in the world in just a few years, um, has you know Tesla is not even. I mean they they have a lot of competition already in in China. So for example, there's a company called Neo that mm -hmm. is basically building the equivalent of Tesla's lower end uh, EVs, the Model Three, 
Um, they're purporting to build those right there in China. And they also have U.S. facilities that they're, they're ramping up right now. So um, to the degree that Tesla can make friends with local Chinese suppliers, the better their, uh, the better, the more success I expect them to have in the Chinese market. So in that sense, um, you know, looking beyond the Panasonic relationship makes a, a ton of sense. Um, having said that, it is a risk because Panasonic knows Tesla very, very well. They've worked together for years. So, um, you know, Building an entirely new supply chain is not easy, and it creates risk. And in the case of Tesla, we probably all remember when uh, Elon Musk got sort of spellbound by automation, tried to remake the production lines, and it led to, to a real disaster in terms of production for the Model 3. So anytime you're rethinking how you make componentry and how you source componentry, you're introducing risk. But in this case, I think it's a risk worth taking. Yeah, Tim, uh, last thing on Tesla, you know, I you know, for me, when I look at the company, you know, I know a lot of a lot of folks really really like the opportunities and the optionality behind it. You know, for me, those questions about competition and those questions about what's going to happen in China and abroad are really really something that kind of makes me want to stay away from it. I you know I, I couldn't see myself putting money to work there. I think sure when it comes to, when it comes to the, the amount of vehicles they're pumping out relative to you know major automakers, uh, it's really not there. They're only on the high end luxury side of the market with. Uh, you know, EV tax credits starting to roll off, and as you mentioned, um, competition really coming online. The really the two places they're really going to search for demand as as demand on the high end maybe it maybe has got kind of got pulled forward um, as EV tax credits were rolling off at the end of 2018. The place Tesla is really looking for demand is in Europe and in China, and that's where there's really a lot of competition online. Yes, uh, particularly yep. in Europe, you've got things like the Porsche Taycan, the Jaguar I Pace. Uh, yep. numerous competitors coming online uh, that will be able to compete with Tesla on price um, as well as features. Uh, and again, you know, we look out into China for China to really uh, make a meaningful impact on Tesla. They have to get uh, this this gigafactory in China up and running quickly. And uh, given their track record on ramping up Model Three production, uh, I'm, I'm not particularly confident they're going to do that, especially considering that you know that their facility. Uh, where, where they're going to do construction? I, last I last I uh, I saw, I mean, it was a dirt lot, you know, six weeks <laughs> right. ago. So I don't know how you're going to get to a global quality production line in a country you've never done business in at scale from zero uh, quick enough. Particularly when you've got things like a 900 million dollar convertible note coming due in March, and again, as I mentioned, all these tax credits beginning to roll off, and them having difficulties uh, making profits. Even with those those kind of uh, tax credits assisting um, those price points for their customers, so I, for for me, I, I think there's a lot of question marks. Um, uh, I, I don't know how I'd invest today. I definitely I, I think at the end of the day, they still are a car company, despite you know whatever presence they have in batteries. You have to look at the core car business first before you decide how to invest. You know, reasonable uh, reasonable opinions may differ on this business, but I, I think it's one I, I want to kind of shy away from personally. Um, yeah. And, Another company you wanted to talk about, Tim, was Intersys. This is a you know relatively small cap, cap company, three point five billion dollar market cap. Um, ha- has background in, in kind of traditional lead acid batteries used in automotive, but they're starting to move more into into uh, kind of backup uh, power plants uh, for renewables from from a battery perspective. 
Uh, what do you like about Intersys? Ticker E-N-Y-E-N-S. Um, yeah, so, it, right, ENS. And, and so this is very different from Tesla. Tesla is highly leveraged, like you mentioned. Um, although I just want to just quick, quickly say, I wouldn't get too hung up on that convertible because the odds are those notes are going to convert. Um, you because think they're going to get 360 by March? Yes, I think they're I, – I, I, well, will it hit 360? Um, I don't know. But I, I do think those notes are going to convert. Um, and I also think that, you know, if they don't convert naturally, there will be a deal to convert those. I I, I sincerely doubt that uh, Tesla is going to be called to the carpet to come up with $920 million in cash. They might. They they certainly might. But I, I would expect uh, dilution more than I would expect um, any kind of uh, cash crunch there. I I just don't think that makes sense for the creditors, and I, I don't think it's going to happen. But um, having said that, Enersys doesn't have that problem. Um, but Enersys also is doing the opposite of Tesla. They're trying to milk the battery market instead of reinvent it. And that, you know, Tesla is uh, taking a lot of risk by putting a lot of money to work in R&D and trying to reinvent the battery. Um, and to the degree, it really isn't about the cars with, with Tesla. It is about the battery. If they do reinvent the battery and they can produce them at scale, um, then nothing stops that company. If they don't, then there's nothing that will save that company. I mean, it really is a binary future in that way as I see it. Enersys, because of – it's sort of a roll-up company. And so you mentioned that they, they're getting into things like backup and renewables. And that's primarily due to acquisitions. One of the most recent was for Alpha Technologies. So And, and Alpha has some alternative ways to um, you know, build batteries, so like fuel cells. Fuel cells are similar – to a um, renewable power in the sense of like a, a classic uh, fuel cell setup would be like a hydrogen battery where you have um, a, a something of, you know, an element that needs to be controlled, stabilized, but can produce a lot of power durably over a long period of time. Hydrogen is that kind of, of element. And so Alpha Technologies sort of built batteries around creating, you know, fuel cells that have durable life. Um, and so they're very, very good at things like um, backup sources for uh, disaster relief or for backing up a grid or for backing up, you know, a critical data center operation, things like that. So Enersys, you know, what I like about this company, Nick, is that because of that position with Alpha Technologies, they have a durable position they can lean on for a really long time because um, that backup power is going to be necessary for, you know, and, and it's getting increasingly so. So um, I don't expect this to be a high growth business, but it's only a $3.5 billion market cap. It doesn't need to grow at exceptional at an exceptional rate to deliver returns to shareholders. Uh, but you know, a roll-up can be, uh, you know, there, there are some risks to that. And so recognize that this is a company that's kind of stitched together. It's not organic growth. So um, it, it, could, it could present some problems over the course of time as demand increases. 
Yeah, definitely be one to watch. You know, and another one we've mentioned that's kind of in that that backup storage space. Uh, you know, on this show is Enphase Energy (ENPH), yep. another interesting company. Um, they do they do micro inverters uh, uh, for for solar and renewable energy generation, and they're starting to branch out into storage. So I think when you when you have those connections with uh, a business line where they kind of looks like there's some synergy um, down the supply chain to kind of provide additional services in addition to what you've already been providing, I, I think that's definitely an interesting way to play it. Um, let's talk about probably the company that I'm most excited about or most interested in uh, when we look at batteries is BYD um, out of China. Yep. Uh, probably the way most folks have heard about BYD is that it is a, uh, a Berkshire Hathaway investment. Um, I believe yep. they invested maybe 10 years ago, I mean, a, a long time ago uh, when it was yes. a much smaller company. Uh, it's been you know one of Berkshire's best performing businesses. Uh, you know, and and uh, Warren Buffett will be the first to tell you he had nothing to do with it. It was all Charlie Munger. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's really been an impressive company. You know, it went from basically a standing start at zero to now one of the largest manu- battery manufacturers in China. What do you like about BYD? What I like about BYD is they have a history, and and so you mentioned that uh, Berkshire invested many years ago. They have 17 years under their belt of making different types of EV batteries, and so um, in their home market, where demand is highest. They are the unequivocal leader, and that creates a huge, huge moat for them. So as demand for EVs spikes, BYD is positioned to be the primary supplier to those EV makers for batteries. Um, Tesla might be the you know the lone exception, although I would not at all be surprised as, as that you know those gigafactory investments begin. That there is a tie-up with with BYD, that wouldn't be surprising at all because that's local expertise and that's something that could uh, very that could ease the path to approvals for uh, Tesla in China. So I would say that's a potential catalyst. I wouldn't rate it highly, but I don't think BYD needs that as its catalyst in order to generate returns for shareholders. Again. Um, they're the biggest maker of you know alternative energy alternative energy vehicles. Um, they've basically transformed themselves from a maker of cell phone batteries into a manufacturer of industrial grade batteries for electric powered cars and monorails. Um, and uh, you know in that way, um, they really have the favor. Of, of regulators because Chinese, China is battling pollution in many of its biggest industrial capitals, not just Beijing. You're talking about Shenzhen and Shanghai. Um, and so, uh, and I believe that BYD is headquartered. I may get this wrong, Nick. I thought it was Shenzhen, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but regardless, the point is that BYD has a history. They have a big market in front of them where they're the primary player, which gives them a moat, and they have regulatory blessing, which is always huge in China. So this is the biggest market in the world, and they're the biggest player. That's a deep pool to swim in, and it can create long years of profits. So I really like this company for that. Sure, yeah. BYD is not a company I'm you know intimately familiar with in and out, but any company that you know uh, Charlie Munger can get really excited about is something that I think is worth any of us paying attention to. And Absolutely. Uh, he's, he's spoken as admirably about BYD as I've, I've heard him speak about almost any business. Um, last last company I want to talk about, and, and, and if you notice, we've kind of gone from, at least in my view, uh, the, the riskier investments down to, to the safest one. And I think 
probably the safe one of the safest investments in the stock market. You know, if not in the battery market, is uh, is BYD. I mean, excuse me, is Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, we already mentioned that Berkshire Hathaway, you know, has a significant stake in BYD. I saw some numbers from Bloomberg suggesting it's almost a quarter of the business. Uh, it's yep. their largest uh, foreign investment to date. Um, so, it's the, so you get some exposure there as well. Uh, Berkshire has some exposure to some U.S. lithium reserves. That there have been some rumors being bandied around recently with regard to what the future might be for them. Do you want to talk about? What that news is, and what folks are, are, what the rumor mill is suggesting when it comes to Berkshire and lithium. Yeah, so it's BHE Renewables. So Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Renewables is a subsidiary, and they have contracts for mining uh, lithium in California. And so there was a story in the Financial Times about a deal to supply what uh, lithium they could extract from that mine to Tesla. Uh, for as much as $1.5 billion you know, annually. That would be material. That would be a very big win for, for that subsidiary. Um, but you know, this is different technology. I, I think it's fair to say, and we talked about this before going on air, Nick, that you know, just as there was a, a shale business uh, you know, where you know, oil makers would go out to the, the fields in South Dakota and, and other parts of the West to extract uh, oil from the ground, you know, in in a different way than the traditional pools of you know under under the water or under the Texas sand, you know, and so forth. Um, this is a little bit similar. You use geothermal technology um, to go in and and identify and extract uh, lithium. So, it, if Berkshire Hathaway was able to do this well, it would surpass, um, you know, the the annual output from big global, you know, producers like we mentioned SQM earlier. Um, but I mean, let's. It's very interesting. It could be a catalyst. But first of all, we don't know that it's real. And Berkshire itself has said that there is no deal yet with Tesla. So, you know, it's it's interesting. It could it could happen at one point. I think it's likely to happen at one point because we don't really have any other options here in the U.S. Um, you know, right now we're, we're getting lithium supply from overseas. So having a homegrown supplier makes a lot of sense, but um, nothing is set yet. And until something is set, um, it's really all rumor and speculation at this point. The good news is there's never a bad time to invest in Berkshire Hathaway. Um, it is one of the most stable, most interesting uh, companies in the world. Um, it's exceedingly well run and insiders are buying shares. Uh, so when insiders are buying and and Warren Buffett has authorized a big repurchase of Berkshire's own stock, that tells you quite clearly that some of the best investors in the world think their own stock is very cheap. That's a pretty good signal. So um, you don't really need that catalyst to profit from from Berkshire stock, but it's nice to know you have at least a couple in that BYD, uh, BYD stake and the potential for you know a nice lithium strike uh, from B, uh, BHE Renewables. Yeah, I agree with agree with you on everything, Tim. You know, going back to that analogy with fracking, you know, it's you know we've known that these lithium supplies have been been available, uh, you know, in the kind of these geothermal brine pools 
uh, for decades, but we haven't had the technology to be able to access that. And we don't know whether you know this Berkshire deal is ever going to materialize, whether there's new technology available or expertise available that, that they're going to use in whatever thing they may attempt uh, that may you know finally uh, make this you know access to this resource you know available. But uh, given given the increase in demand. Uh, that we're expecting to see over the next few years, I think we're definitely going to see some people try, and so it's an interesting opportunity. Uh, and, and Berkshire has some other assets that I, I think, to me, you know, make some sense when you start looking out in an EV future. So you look at an acquisition like, you know, Pilot Flying J. They acquired them, I believe, last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a major kind of truck stop operator. When you think about what it takes to re- to recharge an electric vehicle, it usually takes, you know, to go from zero to full. You're looking at minimum. Half an hour or so, and if I'm if I'm on the highway, I'm going on a road trip, and I want to stop and recharge my vehicle. I think I would much prefer to stop at the the service station that maybe has a little bit nicer bathrooms, has a restaurant included, <laughs> has a has a full uh, uh, kind of built out um, convenience store aspect to it. So I, I think there are, there's some optionality in parts of Berkshire subsidiaries that you know you could pull a lever. And uh, really appeal to, to the way EVs are, are materializing in the future. So you talk about exposure to BYD, talk about exposure to lithium, talk about some assets that really could be, you know, uh, directed in a way that really makes sense for EVs. And it's Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, it, it, it's really the investment that you know you're not going to go wrong with it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them and with the rest of these folks going forward. But uh, it'll be something we have to watch and follow. And we'll talk about it more on the show, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I am uh you know, I'm I'm very interested in in what Berkshire does with this. And think about this. I mean, just a last a kind of a parting thought in terms of where this is going to present next um in the US. What's brilliant about that pilot flying J um, you know, acquisition is that trucks are the primary user, at least of alternative fuel as we have it today. We're only talking about diesel. I mean, but diesel is an alternative fuel. And so when you can commercialize and get high performance, long haul quality, you know, electric batteries and put them in trucks, you'll know this is for real. I mean, that is the signal. When Volvo, which is a big truck maker or Peterbilt, um, you know, they come out with a viable electric engine that can go 600 miles, 800 miles, 1200 miles, and pull a load with it, you'll know this is here to stay. Yeah. And I don't think there's any doubt it's going to be here one of these days. I think it's just a question of, you know, uh, how quickly it's going to come online. And, you know, we've talked about some of the things today that really need to occur uh, to, you know, put uh, put things in motion uh, to really make that happen. So, We'll continue to follow it. Thanks for coming on to talk to us about it, Tim. And uh, we'll have you on later to uh, continue to monitor. Um, My pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to you as well, Tim. Um, As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Tim Byers, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.